This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Jeff Miklos, Executive Director of the Healthcare Transformation Task Force, an industry consortium that brings together patients, payers, providers, and purchasers to align private and public sector efforts to clear the way for a sweeping transformation of the U.S. healthcare system. Under Jeff's leadership, the task force provides a critical mass of business operational and policy expertise from the private sector that when combined with the efforts of CMS and other public and private sector stakeholders can accelerate the pace of delivery system transformation. Jeff really is a great ally in this race to value and the task force is doing its part to catalyze value-based payment adoption. In January, 2015, the task force was formed based on a commitment to the triple objective of better care better health and lower costs. As a unique private sector coalition, under Jeff's executive leadership, the task force has an unrelenting vision to accelerate the pace of value-based care transformation. Consequently, they've set the goal for payer and provider members in the task force to have 75% of their business in value-based payment arrangements by the end of 2025. Let's now hear from Jeff Miklos, the executive director of the Healthcare Transformation Task Force, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Jeff, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the show this week. Eric, thanks for the opportunity. Great to be here. Well, you know, Jeff, I thought we'd start our conversation today by talking about this race to value that we're in in our country. And here on the podcast, we do, in fact, believe that we're in this race to make value work. And, you know, the stats on the health system are pretty grim and we all know them. You know, the four trillion dollars, 20 percent of our GDP. We spend more than two times per capita as the number two country in the world. Our outcomes aren't actually that good, you know, in comparison to what we spend. And we lead the world in chronic disease. We're devastated by health disparities among racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. 
lines. And I always say that we have both this economic and this moral imperative for value. And I know we share that passion to accelerate transformation. And I think that's why you and I hit it off the way we did when we first met. Well, probably that and our love for Pearl Jam, but that's probably another conversation. (laughs) But, you know, at the task force, I know you've assembled this unique private sector alliance that's comprised of payers, providers, purchasers, and patient groups. And you're really focused on this acceleration of value-based care transformation. And your members have set this aspirational goal of having 75% of their business and value-based payment models by the end of 2025. And that's such an awesome goal for these exemplars to have and leading the way. But I'm left to wonder about the rest of the industry. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on the pacing and sustainability of value transformation in the U.S. Will we ever reach that inflection point where value-based care will become ubiquitous across the country for all populations, whether receiving care under public or private insurance? Well, Eric, I I certainly hope we get there. We're not there yet, um, but we certainly are making progress toward kind of a value-based payment and care delivery system. The pace of change is not where the task force would like it to be at this point, but the reality is change is hard. And second, change is even harder when status quo was so lucrative and such as fee-for-service medicine. So pay for volume of services and you'll get volume of services. I think it's a well-known fact that approximately 30% of fee-for-service care is either low or no volume care. Changing that continues to be a major opportunity to sustain the delivery system long-term. This involves changes to both the value-based care delivery and payment models, both in the original Medicare and Medicare Advantage. And that is the path to real and sustainable change, given Medicare really is a market driver here. I'll just give you a sense from where the task force has sat historically and and where we are today. So in 2015, the task force publicly announced its transformation goal that our provider and health plan members would aspire to having 75% of their business in qualifying value-based payment models by 2020. In our parlance, qualifying payment arrangements included shared savings, bundled payments, or capitated or global risk arrangements. Essentially, our reporting protocol aligns with categories three and four of the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network protocol. So we moved from 30% in 2015 to 61% by the end of 2020. So we have not moved our goal, but our members made considerable progress and learned a lot along the way. We also recognize that our progress is not necessarily in line with the industry as a whole, but our board looked at our progress over the last six years and what we learned, and the board recently decided to keep the same 75% aspirational target, but extend our target date until 2025. The board felt it was important to keep up value transformation efforts for all populations, while also important to recognize that the journey is just taking longer and it's harder than first hoped. And in considering this new goal, we took note of the CMMI strategy refresh target goal of having all Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship by 2030. We support that goal, but think 2030 is too far out as a target date to keep the foot on the gas. So we continue to look at other success metrics as well. We have learned over the past seven years that a financial spend metric in and of itself is not an indicator of success. I recall early on that I learned from one of my board members that we have called what we call the so what test. Even if you make it to 75 by 2020, So what? Have you really improved the care that you're providing to your patients and your populations and has it resulted in better population health? So as we continue to look at our success metrics, we will offer more insights from our members about qualitative metrics, about how they are looking at success of their programs in the future. And we hope that we can continue to lead the effort for the rest of the industry. 
Jeff, I appreciate that response. And I want to talk a little bit about how the coronavirus is probably one of the factors that slowed down the pace at which we expected value to be adopted. It's really disrupted all corners of the health system and its long-term impacts are not really known yet. Despite the uncertainty, industry experts and policymakers agree, COVID-19 has only emphasized the need for significant payment and delivery transformation. It showcased the advantages of prospective non-fee-for-service-based alternative payment models, and coupled with new regulatory flexibilities, technological innovations, and cultural shifts, has the potential to fast-track adoption. Acceleration of value-based payment forces a realignment of economic incentives in care delivery. And in so doing, it will save lives, improve the health of our communities, and create opportunities through economic prosperity, and really give our children a better country for it. It seems that the triple aim, the lower per capita health costs, better outcomes, and an improved patient experience is really a bipartisan issue. However, the political environment is wrought with political landmines and stymied by intense lobbying interests that want to perpetuate a fee-for-service status quo. Can you speak to the political climate, its uncertainty, and how it's shaping the current delivery system reform efforts and private sector momentum for value-based transformation? And further, how's the task force collaborating with HHS, CMS, and CMMI to set policy priorities, identify opportunities to advance a public policy agenda that furthers value-based transformation, and engages policymakers and other external organizations in education and advocacy? Dan, great question. And I think the environment has really been interesting one to watch. I mean, we certainly believe there is bipartisan support for the value transformation movement on Capitol Hill. But obviously, there are a lot of competing interests regarding legislative priorities in 2022. The industry and like-minded organizations have really advanced the Value Act over the last few years, although we haven't necessarily been successful in seeing that enacted into law. I think the most important priority this year, in my view, is the extension of the macro advanced APM incentive payment. And that's really to keep the financial incentives in place for physicians to maintain their participation in value-based models. People may not be aware, but right now there is this add-on 5% payment for physicians that are operating in qualifying value-based arrangements called advanced APMs. And that payment sunsets as of 2024. What we have found in our discussion with policymakers is they don't understand, though, that that 2024 sunset date really actually ties to the performance year of 2022. So this is the last year right now that qualifying practitioners can qualify for that incentive payment. We're very concerned that if that lapses, that the uh, financial incentive for physicians to pursue these arrangements is greatly diminished. And those who are actually participating in them now may find some backsliding here. So I do think if we have one opportunity this year, it would really be to extend that macro advanced APM incentive payment. I think brought more broadly, uh, the Build Back Better legislation contains a substantial number of policies aimed at improving social drivers of health and communities, especially those in rural and underserved areas. And we believe this is the right direction to promote long-term success in driving better health. However, the politics of the day seem to be preventing significant progress on moving that legislation forward at this point. So from that perspective, we need to understand what the opportunities are, maybe more on the administrative side with the Biden-Harris administration. I definitely think from a coverage standpoint, the Biden administration deserves credit for a significant increase in the number of people covered under the ACA marketplace exchanges this year. That's a significant win, which in my opinion has largely flown under the radar. Currently, the president's approval rate is not where we'd like them to be. And beyond the pandemic response-related issues, it's really unclear what other healthcare priorities he will drive forward this year 
And now the recent new focus on international affairs in the Russia-Ukraine situation seems to be clouding kind of the policy landscape for the foreseeable future. And I would just say as a kind of a student of politics and someone who's been in DC for over 30 years, the reality is we are in a midterm election year. And at some point the focus will move away from legislating to the election. And if past this prologue, the historical reality is incumbent presidents lose party seats in the, in the House in their first midterm election. And so with this very unique even split of 50-50 in the Senate and, and the history around the House, there's a real possibility that Republicans can take both houses of Congress for 23 and 24, and we'll have to just assess what that really means for the value movement overall. So the task force really thinks that the, the focus needs to be on CMS and CMMI and moving their value agenda forward and what they can do administratively. I think we think CMMI strategy refresh paper issued last fall is a significant development and definitely sets a comprehensive framework for where this administration would like to go. Their goal of accountable care relationships for all Medicare beneficiaries by 2030 is an important goal, but there needs to be more models available to make that happen. When our members reviewed that strategy refresh paper, they supported the direction, but said, what are the vehicles to get us there? And so that's really an, an opportunity. And we all know, for those of us who've been doing this a while, you just don't produce new models overnight from the innovation center. And so there is a kind of a, a want for demand of new models, and we hope that that demand can be met in the near future. Well, Jeff, I appreciate that overview of the political landscape and, you know, have to agree that there will be a demand in some of these payment models. And, you know, you referenced the CMMI strategy refresh, and I know the task force has also put together their own strategy around five different key priorities for 2022. And topping the list for the task force was the objective of driving refinement and uptake of improved value-based care and payment models in original Medicare and beyond. And this work is really focused on better leveraging the Medicare Shared Savings Program as a main platform for permanent innovation within the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, acting as the research and design support for specific model innovations. And this strategy is so important for many reasons, not the least of which are the challenges associated with the Innovation Center, challenges with model evaluations and expansion decisions. And I'd love to hear your perspective on how model-specific evaluations are being made to inform the refinement efforts and how analyses of national health expenditure impacts are being made to guide policy efforts on how best to bend the cost curve. Can you speak a little bit about that, about the what the task force is doing to drive refinement and uptake and value-based care and payment models? And then what lessons can be leveraged from the MSSP to inform innovation and in the research design and re-engineering of specific payment models? And, and also, what are some of the challenges you may see with model evaluation and expansion processes and multi-payer alignment to really drive value-based care transformation forward for all populations. It's a really interesting time to kind of reflect back on the first 10 years of the Innovation Center and also the lessons learned in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. I think what's crystallized for us is the MSSP program has benefited from being a permanent program in statute. It forces the, for CMS to really focus on improving that. If you think of an analogy, clearly, you know, we have these inpatient prospective payment system, annual rulemakings, happens the same for the Medicare physician fee schedule. And it really gives an opportunity, one, for transparency and public input to improving those programs. But the fact is they're permanent and they need to be improved. And it really focuses like a laser, the agency to be able to do that. I think our experience with CMMI, we recognize its great promise at the outset, but it hasn't necessarily met all of its marks 
And some of the concern, I think, is structural. So I'll, I'll come back to that. But I definitely think that ACOs overall have played a key role in transforming the healthcare system you know, by creating incentives for providers to deliver high quality, more cost efficient care. There have been several ACO models launched over the past decade, but MSSP is that only permanent accountable mayor op- option currently available to providers. We do believe that MSSP can be leveraged as a platform to further advance provider adoptions of APMs across the country. And we have encouraged CMS to focus on making MSSP more accessible to providers new to APMs, while also making it more sustainable for those already in the program and to look to MSSP as an opportunity to align and test future ACO models coming out of CMMI. I think the one thing this year that we have focused on, given the interest of CMS in pursuing health equity initiatives, is the reality that we have not reached rural areas and also safety net providers with regard to the current model portfolio, whether that's MSSP or in the innovation center models. And so there's really an opportunity to to try to do that. And when we think about how do we do that, how do we engage those communities that have not yet participated in the value opportunity, we really look back to the ACO investment model as kind of a good opportunity where there were early investments in providers to help them participate in ACOs and allow them to generate a real return on investment for CMS while improving their capacity to deliver high quality care. I think we've also seen from the next gen ACO model, some opportunities where there's a real appetite among experienced providers for a full risk track, which we now believe is MSSP. We had argued and advocated for an expansion of the next gen program. Unfortunately, CMMI decided to sunset that program, but we urged the agency to really follow the approach it took with regard to the pioneer ACO program and add something that looks like the next gen program as a new track in the MSSP program. We also think that the MSSP has a ton of promise as a platform for model testing. CMS has been clear in its desire to streamline AP, the APM portfolio and align with many of the recommendations made in a, in a June 2021 MedPAC report. For those who aren't familiar with it, I encourage you to read that chapter. It's critically important about how MedPAC is advising Congress to think about this going forward and that the period of a thousand flowers blooming should be over. We fully support the goals of creating a simpler model portfolio where we're focused on maximizing the impact of APMs and transitioning the healthcare system away from fee-for-service structures. And in our view, to this end, the predictable and sustainable APM participation options are critical drivers for increasing model participation. And given MSSP is the largest permanent APM program in the nation, it really seems to be the right way forward. Now, interestingly, there is no requirement that the MSSP program be evaluated like there is for the CMMI models, but we think we are kind of learning a lot and see a lot of benefits to the MSSP platform. Now, switching gears, when you look at the CMMI portfolio, I think that the kind of top line takeaway from us is ACOs are really a victim of their own success. CMMI is required to conduct a rigorous evaluation of its models, and it's done a great job in attempting to meet this mandate, given the complexity of the models under review. But we believe, despite their best efforts, the model evaluators have faced numerous challenges that really have impeded their ability to effectively evaluate the models. What are some of these challenges? They include determining the right counterfactual, appropriate comparison groups, accounting for spillover effects as more kind of APMs come online for other populations. They certainly are impacting the evaluation of a specific CMMI model. And then achieving sufficient sample size in voluntary models. We just may not get there in a model environment. 
We know the current group at CMMI is talking about greater use of mandatory models. We'll wait to see exactly what that means, but certainly the, the approach to voluntary has not necessarily allowed to a sufficient sample size to evaluate models effectively. And then we need to determine the long-term impact of models beyond the testing period. You know, when you think about long-term interventions that can drive health and therefore reduce cost over time, that may be outside a three to five year model window. And I think we're seeing some promising models that come online and start to show positive performance late in their model period, um, but then don't necessarily benefit from what we would see as continued success after the model demonstration period is over. So those are real concerns. And all these have, challenges have made it difficult to translate the evaluation findings into broader policy actions and has caused some stakeholders to question whether the findings accurately capture the full extent of model impacts. So some of these challenges are a result of the limits of the value methodologies too. It's not just kind of, it's, it's, it's not only the methodology and design, it, it really is kind of how they're evaluated and how they're implemented. So models are not evaluated in laboratory conditions. And these, these models are changes in health power policy happening along a myriad of other reform efforts that can't perfectly be controlled for. We have seen many instances of slowing spending trends happening in both the model intervention and comparison groups. You know, the normal interpretation of this is that the slowing trend in the comparison group is independent of the model. But there's reason to believe that the value-based payment movement has caused more systemic changes in practice patterns that are changing care for all patients, not just those in the model. And therefore, there's a limitation when you're just trying to focus on the impact of a particular model. So there's a second step to this process. So the CMMI evaluates the model and then it determines whether it can be certified for expansion. So on the topic of model certification, when Congress wrote the statute authorizing the creation of CMMI, it included a requirement that the chief actuary of CMS certify that a model under consideration for expansion would reduce or would not result in any increase in net program spending. What's interesting about this standard is Congress did not define what it meant by certify. There's not a clear set of the kind of the degree of certainty that it had in mind for certification. Uh, it's not in the law. There's no legislative history on it. We really have very little insight into what Congress was thinking when it enacted this language. So this was left then for CMS to interpret the language and the level of evidence necessary for certifying a model. So prospectively certifying that a model will not increase spending is not kind of a standard practice that the Office of Actuary currently does. And so they actually turn to outside actuaries to offer recommendations on how they should interpret and implement that language. The resulting CMMI model certification standard is extremely strict and does not reasonably reflect the inherent uncertainty in forecasting the impact of models. It is designed to minimize potential error at the individual model level, but that's rather than maximizing potential savings to the CMS trust funds by diffusing promising interventions. So it's not quite working as we intended it to work or as Congress intended it to work. And we were able to glean some kind of deep insights into this by when the task force convened a group of outside experts and health economists and research in the summer of 2021 to discuss these issues. We also appreciated that the CMMI evaluations team and the Office of Actuary from CMS participated in these conversations. Um, they were very upfront that they recognized some of the limitations and challenges. And when you think that the Innovation Center has tested over 50 models and has only expanded five at this point, they also recognize that there's an opportunity for improvement here. So we all discussed in those sessions, you know, how CMS can leverage model design and revisit some of its evaluation 
uh, methodologies to better control for these variables. And of course, this gets into very technical areas involving random controlled trials, step wedge program designs, and other things that are well beyond my knowledge. But there was a general consensus that the level of actuarial certainty of cost savings that CMS set at 95% was probably overly strict, was in need of kind of revisiting that. And that CMS should consider a different certification standard given it has greater flexibility under the statute. So as a result of these conversations, which were really a shared learning opportunity among very interested stakeholders and, and experts, the task force has kind of developed a set of recommendations, which we will be issuing uh, very soon uh, to CMS about how to improve the evaluation model process, reconsider the certification process, and look for more wins out of the Innovation Center and more expansion. And this is critically important because if you think about what I mentioned about the advanced APM bonus being a critical incentive, the opportunity for programs to remain available to providers is also critically important to ongoing engagement and investment. So it's a very important area, got an opportunity to really kind of make some changes here and uh, look forward to hopefully having a more public dialogue with CMMI about these policies moving forward. Jeff, thanks for that deep dive into the different models. And I want to shift a little bit and talk about the strides that we're making or the CMS is making in encouraging team-based care with the model portfolio that remains organized around primary care on one side and specialty care on the other. You know, their efforts to prevent duplicate shared savings payments have resulted in overlapping policies with conflicting or opposing incentives for healthcare providers, meaning that we've got multiple shared savings models operating in the same health system. A prime example of this is with ACOs and bundled payment models, and the overlap is ultimately working against scalable value transformation. Policymakers realize this, and they're considering strategies to address the clinical and policy implications of increasing payment model overlap, with CMS reaching out to stakeholders to gather input on how to address the shortcomings of the current overlap strategy. How's the task force supporting CMS's efforts to overcome overlap policies that maintain clear lines between models, but prevent mutually beneficial collaborations that could improve care delivery, patient outcomes, and savings for CMS and providers? Well, Dan, this is a really important topic and one we've been working on for a while. I'll just share a quick anecdote off the top here because it makes me smile and reminds me of the early days of the task force when we had an accountable care work group and a bundled payment work group. And we soon realized that that may not be the best structure because ultimately we want to make models work together well. But we did undertake a process where we brought together members of both work groups and tried to come up with some overlying principles with regard to, at the time we called it model overlap, now we're calling it model integration. And I'll just be candid, those opening conversations were like the Hatfields and the McCoys in that obviously the stakeholders in both of those types of models were very committed to their models and wanted to be the accountable entity. We took about a four or five month period to develop a series of principles. And then we presented those principles to CMMI, which requested more detail. And I said, well, we were challenged enough to get to where we are here. And we wanna to continue to work with you on that. So this issue has been around for a while, but really at the core, what we recognize to make the value model portfolio overall go forward is greater specialty engagement of specialists. That's critically important. So when we think of things now, we see a recent study that found that the mean number of specialist visits for Medicare beneficiaries has increased 20% between 2009 and 2019, with 30% of beneficiaries seeing five or more specialists per year. 
With the increasing role of specialists in caring for the Medicare population, it really is imperative that CMS devise a way to align APM designs in a way that promotes better coordination between PCPs and specialists to effectively deliver high quality and cost-effective care. So as it currently stands, CMS policy does not allow duplicate shared savings payments to providers caring for the same patient. So as a result of this policy, CMMI has made several design decisions intended to limit the effects of overlaps across models. These same design decisions have resulted in confusion over which provider has responsibility for financial risk related to a patient, limited incentives for effective care coordination, and diminished opportunities for financial savings for both CMS and providers. This is really evident in some of the bundled payment and ACO overlap policies that fully attribute a patient to either the ACO or episode provider, creating a disincentive for those two entities to partner and share patients. Moreover, MSSP requirements for participation selection, whether it's a tax identification number only or a TIN slash MPI, and requirements for achieving qualifying practitioner status under MACRA have had unintended consequences of actually discouraging greater alignment between ACOs and specialists because the ACOs seek to maintain the QP status and quality scores as, as their own. This is all despite the fact that there is research demonstrating that better outcomes and lower costs can be achieved when these models work together. So many of our members were queried by CMMI in the fall of 2021 to respond to a series of questions on this topic. The task force is currently engaged in working with our members on developing recommendations that are that next generation set of recommendations about how we should think about this in a more advanced way. We're looking for strategies that CMS should employ to address beneficiary overlap issues between ACOs and episode models in a manner that aligns incentives for care coordination, quality improvement, and cost efficiency. And certainly hope to have that letter out by next month detailing a consensus position on the topic. We also anticipate that CMMI will be releasing some information that it's gleaned from its fall 2021 interviews and where it sees itself going and trying to solve this issue. But it remains one of the more difficult ones, but one we need to solve in, to some degree to be able to be more successful in moving forward the entire portfolio. Well, Jeff, you mentioned earlier about the opportunity to promote Medicare Advantage as an effective driver of value transformation. I know that's one of the task force priorities at the moment as well, and it does seem that MA provides a a favorable platform for driving coordinated care and aligning incentives between payers and providers, and there's clearly successes under this program that should be highlighted and championed. I mean, it seems to me that Medicare Advantage uh, should be a value driver because it relies on a capitation system that allows for a, a greater variety of benefits, greater efficiency, patient satisfaction, and better emphasis on social determinants of health. And MA plans really do seem to be an area right now for consumer-centric innovation, where certain health plans can offer members greater flexibility, inventive care models, and increased emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options, all while being more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. And leveraging Medicare Advantage as a driver of value transformation is certainly not without its controversy, and that can readily be observed in this heated debate right now in health affairs. I mean, on one side, you have Don Berwick and Richard Gilfinan that offer a severe critique of the MA program as a vehicle for risk score gaming and profiteering. And on the other side, you have 
George Halverson that advocates for MA by saying it provides better care and saves money. And I'd love to get your take on all that, Jeff. I mean, how can MA be considered an effective driver of value transformation? Can you discuss the task force and its work in developing public policy recommendations and facilitating operational shared learnings with the focus on making the MA program even more operative and advancing value-based care? And I'd also love to get your views on the, the current debate going on right now in health affairs as well. Yeah, Eric, happy to do so. And I, and I will say just at the outset of the answer is that I'll share a little bit of insight into why our board has made this a 2022 priority for us. And I think there is a recognition, one of the growth of the program, and I'll come back to that in a second, but it's important that the flexibility inherent in its platform is really allowing them to move the clinical care transformation forward probably more expeditiously than an original Medicare. And, and that, at the end of the day, is what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to produce better care for individuals and, and, and communities with better outcomes. Um, and so maybe this original Medicare can, remains very clunky in that regard. But I, I really think to set the context for Medicare Advantage, it's important to, to really look at just some, some data points here because we know generally that MA enrollment is growing, but when you really unpack the statistics, it's, it's really very striking. So we know that Medicare Advantage has been a critically important part of the Medicare program as evidenced by its growth over the past 14 years. So in 2008, there were 45 million total Medicare beneficiaries, of which 10 million were in MA plans. That's a Medicare Advantage market penetration of 22%. By the end of 2021, there were 64 million total Medicare beneficiaries, of which 28 million were in MA plans. That's a Medicare Advantage market penetration of almost 44%. So that's a doubling of MA's market penetration in 14 years. And the Congressional Budget Office projects that 51% of Medicare beneficiaries will be in MA plans by 2030. So we absolutely have to look at this program as a value driver and how do we improve it in that way. And that's really part of the, uh, the agenda for the task force this year. But if you look at these statistics a little bit differently, the total Medicare beneficiaries grew by 19 million during this time period, while MA grew by 18 million. So the increase in the baby boomers in the Medicare program during this time period in the aggregate accrued almost exclusively to the MA program. And why is that? Well, from a coverage standpoint, you know, MA enrollees may pick a plan that provides traditional Part A and Part B benefits plus additional benefits, like prescription drugs, dental and vision benefits, and since 2019, Medicare Advantage plans have had the flexibility to address enrollees' unmet needs by targeting benefits to beneficiaries with chronic illness and offering a wider array of primary health-related benefits. And I think I'm going to pause here and just emphasize this because this is critically important. This is the first time the program has really looked at the array of beneficiaries it serves and realizes that there's a subset of the overall set of Medicare beneficiaries that may need to be served in a different way. There has always been kind of the non-discrimination clause in original Medicare, which made, basically made what was good for one was good for all. There's a recognition now in some recent policy that that may need to be the case. And that allows MA to kind of invest in a more um, targeted way for those beneficiaries that, that need that. But also from an affordability standpoint, private MA plans offer operate using premiums, deductibles, and co-pays. And most MA enrollees experience lower premiums than original Medicare and caps on out-of-pocket costs. So in 2019, 83% of MA plans offered zero monthly premiums. So these options greatly enhanced affordability for individual enrollees. And it's important to note that if you think about the Innovation Center 
and how they're talking about affordability these days in light of their strategy refresh, they really are focusing not only on savings to the program itself, but savings to their beneficiaries. And I think in looking at that as a policy objective, MA has been successful in that regard. So what are some of the other elements that support the argument that MA is an effective value driver? It's unique in that it uses full capitation, including quality incentives, and allows payers the flexibility to design benefit packages that focus on preventive services and care management programs. Those are all aspects of what we consider to make up a person-centered, value-based model. Also, we are seeing increasingly that outcomes for high-need, high-cost beneficiaries are better for those in Medicare Advantage than Medicare fee-for-service including better outcomes related to pneumonia vaccinations, eye exams for diabetes patients, and rates of depression screening. Also, higher rates of physician office visits within 14 days of hospital discharge and lower Part D costs are clearly there. So we definitely want to focus on MA, and it's interesting from the task force perspective, in our early years, and we continue to do this, but in our early years, our primary focus with our payer members and our purchaser members was how can we make value go faster for commercial populations? And we can talk a bit more about that later, but that's certainly not progressing at the rate we'd like to. But what we have seen in the last few years and what we're reacting to now from a priority standpoint is the idea that MA is really where the action is for plans right now. And their financing under the MA is also allowing for them to invest in, in developing value-based models and infrastructure for other populations. And so that does allow for a great amount of investment. So let me talk a little bit about the task force priorities in MA for 2022, and then I'll come back to your point about the, the debate that's going on in, in health affairs currently. So we have several priorities related to MA for 2022. We are looking to produce and advocate for consensus policy recommendations to enhance MA's role as a value transformation driver. Certainly effective where it is now, it can be better, and we've been working with our members to develop recommendations. And then we also want to share learnings and advance action steps for improving operational partnerships, which enhance the impact of MA on value transformation. A lot of our work, as you can understand from a multi-stakeholder group like ours, we want to be able to have the plans and the payers, um, the payers and the providers talking to each other about what they're finding kind of in their developing relationship is working well, what's not working well, what has the, the ability to be, uh, to be advanced to scale some of those relationships beyond just the MA relationships, maybe into Medicaid, managed care, and potentially in commercial space as well. So we really want to focus on share learning within our membership and get their vision for what they see going forward. As we discussed uh, the MA priority with our members for 2022, the plans were excited about the work stream and also made a specific ask that we work with our consumer members and develop the value proposition of MA. The plans are very interested in hearing directly from the beneficiary and consumer groups about what they see as the pros, the cons, the weaknesses, and the strengths of the MA program. And we will be doing that and we'll be De developing that not only from the consumer perspective, but really from all of our 4P membership categories. And looking forward to already getting some great information, insights uh, from those communities, and we'll be developing that. That will be a public-facing document. So if we drill down a little bit in the process of addressing these priorities, we want to look at, at on the policy side, you know, what lessons has MA regarding consumer affordability can be applied to other models and to CMS's overarching goal of increasing affordability and what are the opportunities for aligning quality measurement and regulatory standards and flexibilities across Medicare Advantage, Medicare Shared Savings Program, ACOs, and other models? And what lessons can be learned from MA to help support driving more downstream risk arrangements 
while there's a capitated relationship between the plan and CMS, we would like to see increasing kind of downstream advanced risk arrangements between the plan and the participating providers. And we're starting to see more momentum on that side. Kind of on the operational side, I'd say we would include what tools and strategies do payers use in MA to drive improvement clinical coordination and integration, understand the degree to which they're operating the care coordination function or they're delegating that to providers because the providers have the capacity to do so. And how can payers translate what has worked well in MA to their commercial populations? And what promising practices related to beneficiary education and engagement are being used in MA that can be scaled for use across the value landscape. We think that there's a lot to learn there and there's a great story to be told. To your question about the ongoing debate in health affairs on the Medicare Advantage program, I believe it's an important dialogue for the health of our country. It certainly has engendered a lot of dialogue and reaction. Uh, and of course, as you can appreciate, probably differences of opinion within the task force membership. But it's a most worthwhile debate because there are good arguments on both sides. And in, in my opinion, you know, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Fee-for-service Medicare is antiquated and lacks the infrastructure and aligned incentives to manage care for beneficiaries. When providers are paid on volume, volume is what you get. Upwards of 30% of care in original Medicare relates to no or low value care. That presents a significant opportunity for improvement from both the cost and quality perspective. We think the MA platform is, is, is designed to better drive at that objective. And also, you know, financing issues around the Medicare program represent some of the most critical policy and political issues in our country. There's no doubt that the MA funding stream has been political. I believe even the Halverson uh, article recognizes that there has been kind of an ongoing opportunity to kind of fix some of the structural issues in the payment scheme within the Medicare Advantage program. But for political reasons, um, there really hasn't been much forward progress there. We certainly think that there are a lot of detail in all of those blogs that really kind of shed light on greater detail than maybe has been in the public discourse before. And we do think that we can find a middle ground um, for moving forward and making that a more effective program, both from a financing and a risk management standpoint. So I think the opportunities for value-based payment and care delivery models in original Medicare are significant, but they just have to understand that they're still dealing with structural issues, um, as we talked about, with regard to the CMMI infrastructure and the ability to expand models there. That's why I think increasingly even providers are more focused on the MA space as the opportunity to move along some of these more mature value-based arrangements. So I think we, what we're going to see is a continued debate there, whether that's going to be a topic of legislation this year remains to be seen. I think the final article from Rick Gilfillan and Don Berwick talk about the opportunity to uh, think about trimming back some of these payment policies in Medicare Advantage and using them as potential pay-fors and more of the build back better opportunity to pay for some of the longer term policies that may contribute to better overall population health and in and of itself would help us reduce the medical spend. Jeff, as you and our listeners know, on February 24th, 2022, CMS revealed the highly anticipated fate of the CMMI direct contracting model options by announcing a redesign of the Global Professional Direct Contracting or GPDC model and the permanent cancellation of the Geographic Direct Contracting or GEO model. And the revamped and rebranded GPDC model is now called the Accountable Care Organization Realizing Equity, Access and Community Health or ACO REACH. The agency says this model aims to better reflect their vision and the administration's priorities for system transformation, as well as an attempt to alleviate the concerns of GPDC's critics. 
Importantly, they've maintained many of the key features of the model. They're building on the momentum of the accountable care movement. We've seen a mixed response to the new ACO REACH model. You know, the changes to the model garnered praise from supporters like the National Association of ACOs and Village MD, who is a current participant in the GPDC model. These organizations noted that the changes, including an increased focus on health equity, increased provider representation, and also other changes that will make the model less onerous. And they'll better represent the evolution of the ACO experiment. On the other side of it, though, we have dozens of progressive lawmakers calling for the cancellation of GPDC altogether. And they were glad to see changes to the program, but expressed concerns that those changes didn't go far enough. Some of the opponents have also maintained a really hardline opposition to the model, like the group uh, Physicians for a National Health Plan, who say that REACH doubles down on the fatal flaws of GPDC. I'd love to hear your perspective on how the ACO REACH model can drive value transformation, and how would you respond to the critics and the criticisms of the, of the ACO REACH model? Well, Daniel, thanks for the question. There's a lot there, and I think it's uh, it's appropriately so. I think this has been something that's not only policy focused, but turned into being highly political over the last couple months. I would say first and foremost, the task force members are pleased that the direct contracting program will continue in 2023. It's an important model because it offers a critical opportunity for CMS to help pursue its goal of having every Medicare beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030. So terminating the program in the way that uh, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal asked would have been a significant setback for that, given how long it takes to develop new models. I do think it's a very positive thing, and it's rebranding as the ACO REACH model, again, unpacking it, realizing equity. There's some new policies in here that are not only showing some cards on how CMS is thinking about equity for this model, but maybe thinking about it for future models. It also is focused on trying to create access to APMs in communities that have not had um, uptake of APMs to date, both medically underserved areas, rural areas, and things of that nature. So there's some attempts to kind of draw folks in there as well. The key things I think we hear from our members is that there's good that there's still a, a capitated model available. We're still digging into the details, and of course, not all the financial information is yet available. Um, so the, the, the kind of the specific math formulas that, that need to be understood and kind of modeled are not fully out yet, but certainly the fact that there's a capitated model that's continuing for those advanced providers is, is very attractive. As you mentioned, there are the, um, some of the changes to the programs, many of which we asked for as the task force and are excited that are there. Changes in the physician governance standards from uh, 25% of the board to 75% of the board is a very positive thing. We believe that will make the model a bit more provider focused, which was the original intention of this. And we think that's a good thing. We also think that the reduction in the, the benchmark discount from 5% to 3.5% and the quality withhold amount from 5% to 2% is also positive in its developments. It means that there's less money kind of skimmed off the top for you to earn back. And we think that will be a, a positive. Where I think it stops a little bit short and we're concerned, I think, on the access for on, um, underserved communities to pick up on the model is there's no upfront investment dollars like the AIM model or things of that nature. And so I think for those areas that do not have kind of the resources to invest in models, it'll be interesting to know whether what they have done kind of in the back end parts of the model design will be enough to attract them. And again, the devil's in the details and we don't have all of those yet. 
I do think that uh, the politics of the situation has been very interesting to follow. It does teach, I think, first and foremost, that we still have educational opportunities with policymakers at the federal level and at the state level to talk about what value-based care and payment uh, is all about and what it is and what it isn't. I think there was a part of the debate where there was kind of a single payer element to some of the lobbying or some of the positioning that we saw from the progressives in both the House and the Senate. And I think that coverage is a separate issue from delivery system reform. That's a theme that we have reiterated numerous times across our life cycle at the task force. And I think that's clear and present again. So even though we do have a model, a final model here, we still have work to do to educate policymakers and show the bright spots from both the provider, the payer, and the purchaser, and the patient consumer members, in particular with regard to the Medicare portfolio. So getting back to the specifics of the ACO REACH model, um, as is the case with most CMMI models, the request for application is now out. People are digesting that. You know, I expect that many will file applications, but these applications are non-binding. So the number of actual participants may be lower, maybe much lower than the number of applicants once the kind of final details are received here. You know, on the health equity front, it's really interesting. Kind of said this before, and it's not, we know it's something that the agencies have been grappling with is under the CMMI statute, if, if really a model is intended to needs to be intended to save money uh, for the public fisc or the Medicare trust fund, it's really hard to do that if you're using normal benchmarking methodologies in areas that have been underserved historically and you're trying to address that inequity. So the idea now that there's some kind of additional benchmark add-on for qualifying communities and areas, I think is a really good step in the right direction. But again, it comes down to where are the lines being drawn how are those communities that can qualify for that additional benchmark adjustment is drawn? And then how to, and that actually is the amount that's being proposed uh, at this point by CMMI sufficient to really draw people in. So again, we'll be watching that really closely, ongoing dialogue with our members on, that, on those topics and more. There is also a nod to greater consumer engagement. The GlowPro model under direct contracting Uh, required patient representative and a consumer advocate to be on the board, but it did allow for one person to serve in both roles and that that member did not necessarily need to be a voting member. It's a small change, but it's, it's meant to send a signal, in my opinion. There now has to be two separate representatives, one patient rep, one consumer advocate, and both need to have a vote on the board. So definitely pushing forward CMS's idea of a stronger consumer engagement aspect here. What's also interesting is kind of the cost shift that, that's available to pay for the benchmark adjustment. Basically, they're going to look across a panel of an ACO and c- kind of take some dollars off the top for the top 50% of the least disadvantaged providers that will essentially fund that lower 10% of the most disadvantaged providers or, or beneficiaries. So again, really detailed math there, but that's how they're kind of creating money to be able to provide the enhanced benchmark for those communities. Again, we'll wait to see if that's sufficient to drive uptake of the model. I think there's also another reason overall just to kind of understand that this policy announcement or this program announcement may still be difficult. Um, There will be interest, but again, there's another reason why it's unclear why many new organizations, how many new organizations will actually join the program in 2023. There's been a lot of interest in direct contracting, but as we've discussed, uh, there's been uncertainty around the program. Some have moved in different directions, opting for MSSP enhanced in 2023 so that they would still be uh, in a viable model. They've contracted that network and just given the way that uh, 
MSSP enhanced in particular compared to the, re the ACO REACH program, you really would have to retrace your steps and potentially recontract with your network to meet the different requirements. So while there may be ongoing interest in ACO REACH, it may be that people do not transition in 2023, but look for opportunities kind of in future years of, of the program. Uh, I'll close by also mentioning, I know elsewhere during our discussion, we talked about the model evaluation and expansion challenges that are out there. It's unclear right now whether the changes that have been made to the model in ACO REACH materially change the direct contracting model such that the 2021-2022 cohorts under direct contracting would be materially different and therefore couldn't be included in any uh, evaluation of the ACO REACH program starting in 2023 and going forward. So more of a researcher issue, but uh, definitely something that people are uh, paying attention to. Well, Jeff, I know another area that the task force is involved in is seeking the improvement of consumer engagement and value-based care. And that is so important in value transformation as we're going to need a grassroots consumer-led movement to hold the industry accountable. And it seems like there's this glaring lack of general awareness of value-based care in the general population. As a matter of fact, I recently saw a study that was conducted by Dynata that found that only 63 consumers out of 1,000 can accurately define what value-based care even is. And it's, this is such a problem since strong consumer engagement in in education about value-based care is a catalyst for transformation in and of itself. And the task force realizes this and has been developing and driving member adoption of an implementation guide for the refresh consumer engagement principles that you released in 2021. And you've also been working extensively with CMMI on their beneficiary engagement strategy. Uh, can you expound upon the work that the task force is doing to improve consumer engagement and value-based care? And what are some of the beneficiary engagement strategies that are being considered right now by the Innovation Center? Yeah, Eric, this is a critically important area. And I'll just say kind of it's a foundational element for the task force. So our founding chair was Rick Gilfillan, who was the first director of the Innovation Center. And as he left government uh, and returned to the private sector, he really wanted to help stand up a private sector consortium that could work kind of shoulder to shoulder with CMMI and, and advance value in the commercial sector. And in deciding how he and his group of folks who kind of founded the task force wanted to design the membership, it was critically important in their eyes that the consumer be at the table and be a kind of a equal stakeholder in our approach. And so when we talk about our membership being providers, purchasers, payers, and patients, each has an equal voice around our table. And what we've learned over time has been very interesting is that, you know, we've had to kind of iterate as a membership to see what it does it mean to be a person-centered healthcare system. And some level, you would think maybe the consumer groups would have a clear vision of that, but they don't understand all the fine kind of the finer workings of inside health systems and, and health care plans and to know best how to maximize some of their broader principles. So we've done a lot of work on this. We had an original set of principles back in 2016 about how consumer priorities should be advanced in value-based care. Uh, we decided last year that they were now kind of worthy of a refresh. We did that in 2021, released those publicly. And as you indicated, we are now actively working on an implementation guide that's, that's focusing on, on consumer engagement. We know we did benefit. We, we do believe that the Biden-Harris administration is committed to improving beneficiary engagement across the agency, and in particular in the Innovation Center. In 2021, we convened a consumer roundtable 
that comprised of our member consumer organization, as well as other consumer organizations to kind of participate with CMMI and its leadership on this topic. We do know that there's some early uh, indicators of where CMMI would like to take their strategy and the strategy refresh paper. And we anticipate that there'll be more coming on that uh, policy and that approach and strategy in the coming months. Um, as we tape today, CMMI just held a listening session on consumer engagement. Uh, many organizations are participating uh, we have submitted a statement for the record. Uh, we definitely think things are going in the right direction there. I think at the core, though, what we have found both in our consumer roundtable meetings with CMMI and our own internal conversations is that the reality is many Medicare beneficiaries do not realize they are receiving care from providers who are participating in an alternate payment model. And because of this, they do not necessarily understand how or why their care is being delivered differently or any potential negative issues they may experience. So we have been leveraging various opportunities, including the Consumer Roundtable, to communicate to CMS and among our membership for adoption and other populations, the importance of following strategies. So one thing we encountered early on was in the conversations between kind of our pioneer ACOs, and I don't mean the pioneer program, but the Vanguard organizations that were early into the various ACO programs at CMMI, really sought guidance from the agency to the degree to which they could speak to and educate beneficiaries about accountable care organizations. And the agency responded in a way that really created caution among ACOs. And the mindset was really around some of the Medicare Advantage marketing guidelines um, and some of the policies there that are restrictive. In some ways, it, they don't want organizations to be able to steer beneficiaries in a particular direction, whether that's an ACO or an MA plan. We understand that. That's a good policy. But we're not necessarily steering in the value-based payment space when you're talking about educating really and just making people aware of that and beneficiaries what they're participating in. We, we would hope now after this kind of time period where we haven't been able to do that as ACOs as much as we would like to, and we haven't had really kind of significant educational material come out of CMMI. So I think in the come of our recent conversations, we do think that the agency should revisit its marketing-related compliance regulations that limit how kind of health plans and by kind of proxy ACOs are allowed to conduct the education of beneficiaries and provide outreach on their payment models uh, to currently reflect the current environment and the desire overall to get more people involved in value-based payments. So we think CMS needs to provide beneficiaries with information and education in an easy to read format offered in a variety of languages to ensure that they understand the programs and models in which the providers are participating we have long advocated for kind of a robust APM ombudsman program as a resource for beneficiaries and beneficiary groups to ask questions and raise concerns when appropriate, and then just create other forms for meaningful consumer engagement, whether that's investing in training and education to ensure there's a deeper and broader bench, diverse patient and beneficiaries that can be called upon to provide input, and also that these individuals have the knowledge they need to provide useful feedback and input. You know, the task force has remained committed and understands the challenge associated with having beneficiaries involved or enrollees involved kind of in the development, the implementation, the operation, the evaluation of models. But that doesn't mean we should avoid that. We need to make strides in positive strides in that regard. And then establishing a continuous feedback loop process with beneficiaries engaged in providing feedback. So they are also aware of how their input will be used in decision making. Increasingly, we are seeing kind of within the private sector, there's beneficiary representatives that are being represented in governance overall, whether it's through patient family committees and other 
activities that are being both done by the plans and by the providers to get greater beneficiary input. And we think that the opportunity is there for the agency to learn more about what's working in the private sector. But I think more than anything, we need to inform beneficiaries about how the different value-based payment models measure clinical quality so they can better understand to what standards their providers are being held accountable. And first and foremost, that we are looking to provide valuable care, not voluminous care. And that that doesn't mean that they were stinting on their care. We are right-sizing their care so that they get the right care from the right provider at the right time. We do, again, anticipate a release of a consumer beneficiary engagement strategy from CMS, and we hope that will really be a deeper dive on the high-level engagement goals that they put forth in their strategy, strategy refresh white paper. Jeff, the task force also realizes the importance of employers in the value transformation effort. We really need solutions in the employer-sponsored health insurance marketplace right now. And the market covers 157 million Americans but it's dysfunctional and ineffective in producing value in health. With poor health costing employers $530 billion on top of the $880 billion they already spend in premium dollars. I know the task force has prioritized advancing purchaser and employer engagement to drive value transformation for commercial populations in recognition that value transformation efforts are lagging for these populations. As I understand, the task force plans to convene a purchaser roundtable that will share perspectives about why this is and to develop an action plan designed to push those efforts forward. Can you share some additional context on how the task force is approaching the advancement of purchaser and employer engagement to drive value transformation? Yeah, sure, Dan. And this is really a critical priority for the task force has been from the beginning in response. It's very challenging. And I think we look at the community of employers and purchasers, and you really see kind of different shapes and sizes and market dynamics around this. Yes, we are planning to convene a uh, purchaser roundtable, hopefully in April of this year. This is not new work for us. It's actually revisiting work that we did in 2018, where we really asked the question. The one thing that we believe around the task force table is that each of our membership groups are contributing to the positive momentum to value transformation uh, adoption and advancement, but each can do more. And when you really look at it and peel back the onion, you know, the commercial space has not driven the value, the, the need and the demand for value as much as maybe one would hope or think. Now, there certainly are, you know, high profile, large national employers that have engaged in a variety of programs here. You know, whether it's direct contracting between the employer and, and a set of providers in the markets in which they operate, whether it's you know, employing a, a center of excellence type model where there's certain conditions that they will contract with a national entity to provide services to, or whether they actually just employ directly the, you know, or contract with an ACO directly. And there are, you know, there's been a lot of lessons that have been learned there one way or the other. I think what we want to do this year is revisit that conversation see how the landscape has evolved since 2018, and in particular, what now is the view that's being colored by um, the pandemic uh, experience, and what has COVID-19 done in the private healthcare sector? You know, what we will hear historically from employers is that if they're in a, a competitive environment and they're offering a high deductible health plan, and there may be some reticence to layer on top of that a narrow network or a, a tiered network that may come with a value-based model. And so they may shy away from that, from doing that. We want to understand kind of the evolution of the market and what we think are maybe the calling cards today that may be different than several years ago. 
about how we can better engage the purchasers um, to move forward in the commercial space. Clearly, they continue to see rises or just incredible increases in their costs by and large. And some of the larger employers will now have probably even a greater imperative to move in this direction. But for the midsize and the smaller employers, you know, there's really going to be continue to be challenges there just because of the scale of their operations and their leverage and being able to kind of negotiate favorable arrangements. In these seven years that we've been talking with purchasers and plans, there's a greater recognition of the plans from the plans on what is desired by purchasers. But however, the plans will continue to say that the shift in the insurance market away from traditional indemnity insurance to self-insured plans really creates challenges for them in the marketplace. So if you think of a transit of a health plan currently having 80% of their book of business in self-insured plans, that means each of those employers has a specific desire for a particular model, and therefore there's some kind of disincentive for payers to enter into 14, 15 different types of value-based payment arrangements. And so to the extent that the large, whether it's regional or national payers, have been trying to advance kind of a consistent value-based payment model, they're all subject to uh, negotiation and they may not all look alike. And so that in and of itself is a little bit of a drag. So we really just want to continue to recognize the importance of pushing value-based payment forward for all populations. And so we're going to revisit that this year. We're going to bring in a number of outside experts that represent a wide variety of the purchaser community. We may also go into the health benefit space and ask some of the large brokers to come in and talk about their perspective on this. And really what we want to come out of that, of course, is learning what the landscape today looks like and then developing an actionable strategy for us to continue to try to push the uptake of commercial population uh, value-based payment models. Well, it's important work, Jeff, and the role of employers and value transformation is uh, irrefutable. And it's great to see that there's some thoughtfulness around, you know, how to catalyze that. And in your response, you mentioned how the health system has been colored by the pandemic and, you know, their views of the world. And I can think of no greater example of that than, you know, what we've seen with this conversation happening in health equity. I mean, it, it's unfortunate that it took a, a flashpoint like COVID-19 to really illuminate some of the glaring disparities that we've had all along in the health system and the adverse outcomes that we have in underserved communities. And I know the Innovation Center is really thinking about this, and they stated definitively in their CMMI strategy refresh that it plans to embed health equity in every aspect of models to increase focus on underserved populations. And I'm particularly interested in how this will come about since CMMI models to date have been largely Medicare-oriented and voluntary models have primarily drawn only those healthcare providers and organizations with resources and capital to apply and participate, resulting in limited attention to Medicaid and safety net providers. And I know the task force is really engaged on this issue and has prioritized promoting health equity in value-based care and payment models. This has been a longstanding item for you guys. And I, I know you formed a health equity advisory group to develop a resource and drive member uptake of a business case for pursuing health equity across populations. And, you know, that works focused on developing perspectives and driving implementation strategies that address race and ethnicity, data access, and along those lines, and just the availability concerns and that hinders some of these health equity initiatives. And I'm really interested to hear some of your views on how we hardwire equity more into payment model design that impacts providers. Um, can you share 
your perspective on that? And, you know, how should ACOs and DCEs and other risk-bearing entities be thinking about how to value investments right now so they can better leverage data and prepare for this uh, shifting focal point and payment model redesign? Yeah, Eric, this is like the priority of health equity is unassailable, right? I mean, this is something that we need to be doing. I think the experience, not only of the pandemic, but from the social justice issues over the last couple of years have shown a light on you know the need to kind of pursue this. That being said, it's a very challenging area. I will just say from the task force perspective, promoting health equity has been a guiding principle of ours from day one. We have done a lot of work um, and had a lot of kind of conversations among our members and stakeholders in our patient-centered priorities work group. You referred to our new health equity advisory group that we just stood up in the last couple of months. And it's meant to complement the work that we've been doing because it's also a recognition that um, while the goals of health equity really are supported by everybody, how do we also make this work in the current environment? And so to your point about um, kind of the business case for this, we really want those senior level leaders from our provider, purchaser, and payer members to kind of come together and share their thinking about how they think about health equity and advancing these um, efforts long-term in a business environment. And uh, again, we're just getting going on this work, but one of the early meetings kind of really crystallized it for us. You really can't think about it necessarily in the traditional terms of return on investment necessarily. You may need to think more of it on the value of the investment and your role as a community contributor uh, and how do we solve this over time. So before I get into the task force priorities in this space for 2022, I will just want to recognize one thing that I think is really challenging, again, for CMMI in this regard, and it comes back to the structure of the Innovation Center and its statutory mandate, again, to either save the program money or improve quality without an increase in net spending. So if we think about health equity, what are we trying to do? We're trying to reach underserved populations, whether it's in rural areas, underserved communities, and what does that mean? That means people who haven't received the level of healthcare that they probably need. And so just at the kind of initial reaction to that, it's hard to think of an environment where you're going to be able to actually achieve some of the objectives of promoting health equity without costing more money in those communities. The benchmarks, the way all the methodologies work, it's really hard to kind of reconcile those two competing interests. And I know that the leaders at CMMI are grappling with this. And so whether to think about it more as a quality improvement ability or things of that nature, there are some kind of structural limitations that they'll need to think through there. And I think that we're seeing some early indications about where they'd like to go, whether it's in the kidney cares model or some new ideas that are in the MA, Medicare Advantage, notice of proposed rulemaking and rate notice for calendar year 23. Um, and so they're, they're starting to kind of show their cards a little bit, but this is a challenging area for them to work in. So I think, you know, when, when one of the biggest challenges that we hear from our members is that whether it's a payer or provider, the investment in health equity interventions is challenged right now by the lack of self-reported data on race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability status, veteran status. So, you know, we are looking at this point that we're only as good as the data we have. So one of the early things we're doing with our health equity advisory group is trying to really catalog what data sources are out there and kind of value assess them as what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses. We certainly don't want to kind of result in an outcome similar to what we've seen in clinical quality measurement, which is having just a whole bunch of different approaches to this. There'd be really some benefits to standardization. Um, and if that can be a government-led effort, 
that would really help. I think um, what we hear from payer organizations is that they have already some of this work in progress, but they also want to make sure that they're efficient in what they're doing by creating kind of a data set that's going to be consistent and usable across populations. And so the availability and the access to data that's kind of consistent, uh, measurable and actionable across the, the, um, across the arena, I think it was, is still one of the great challenges. So as I indicated, we are working with our members to develop that business case for institutions, recognizing that these investments require a longer term horizon and also require looking outside of the clinical system to account for savings that emerge in other settings, whether it's education. You know, I think we hear just in the last two weeks, I've heard on multiple occasions of, you know, especially in, in the light of inflation, uh, the obviously the choice between food and medications and other things that we have to recognize we need to address. So the access to uh, healthy food is obviously top of the heap. There are a, a number of other issues that are also our priorities when we focus on health equity. And what we hope to achieve this year with our members includes identifying promising practices for improving comprehensive data collection and examples of quality measurement and reporting that support health equity. We want to developing actual payment and delivery strategies for incentivizing payment that supports clinical transformation aimed at improving health equity and addressing benchmark challenges that impede all providers, particularly those who work in historically underserved communities from participating in value payment models. Again, you know, data is key here. The commitment I think is there and, and also the opportunity for not only uh, the Medicare population, but to your point, uh, Eric, you know, we need to really look at the Medicaid population as well. The task force has done a lot of work in the maternal health space in the past three years, and we're hopeful that either through CMMI itself uh, or even through the state collaboratives now that the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network has stood up, that we can see some forward movement in developing a value-based maternity model which will really get at, I think, what is the top of the heap as far as a critical area for us to try to achieve health equity and better outcomes for underserved and vulnerable populations. Jeff, thank you so much. I just want to take this opportunity. This has been a great conversation. And as we close out today, you know, you've been talking about the challenges that we face with equity. I'd like to get your parting thoughts on the challenges that we're facing just with resiliency. You know, it would be wonderful if our healthcare system could be insulated from the invariable disruptions that take place as we make a very seismic shift to value-based transformation. But unfortunately, we've got things like the pandemic and economic and cultural stressors, and the system is vulnerable to these shocks and changes. And if the health system is unable to withstand the pressure from another shock, it may cease to function or collapse. In the post-pandemic era, can you provide your parting thoughts on the importance of striving for a resilient healthcare system where payers and providers partner to provide person-centered value-based care through aligned incentives and shared risks? Is there a silver lining to COVID-19 in that, in that it will support greater optimism for and adoption of value-based payment? You know, Dan, it's a great question to close on, and, and it brings a smile to my face because, you know, I'd, I'd like to think I'm an optimistic person by nature, and I, and I do remember sitting in my house in March and April of 2020, re, just thinking about what this means for the value movement, what it means for the Healthcare Transformation Task Force, and really, I think over time, it's been really interesting to watch the evolution of the kind of analysis of this. So, you can appreciate that in the spring and summer of 2020, you know, around a table like ours, there was definitely some tension 
We, you know, we, we see payers collecting premiums. There's really no claims being paid because there aren't services being provided. We're seeing those members who maybe have been a little bit more of the early adopters and have the advanced risk arrangements feel a little bit more comfortable about their situation. Those who may not be as far along really feeling the crunch and then reading about, you know, some of our, our members and in particular, you know, the family physician groups that we're seeing different approaches across their members and seeing practices closed because of lack of cash flow. So certainly a very devastating time for many. But I think when you think of it from a macro level, it showed people the importance of developing these kind of modernized relationships between payers and providers. Because the reality was those who had the advanced risk arrangements, whether it was shared savings or whether it was ultimately capitation or global budget, they were okay. But those that just had the fee-for-service were not. But that didn't mean that payers didn't help out, didn't reach out to help their, their providers, right? And so maybe that took the form of loans, or maybe it was just grants, or it was other things to help them survive as practices. And also, though, you know, over time, continue to serve the enrollees of a particular payer because they wanted to maintain access to an effective and a robust panel over time. And so I think the, the conversations evolved later into 2020 and into 2021 about more than ever, this should really be a tailwind for value-based payment and that we do need to think about the modernizing the system. And for those who maybe have been dragging their feet and got kind of clipped along the way, they understand more than ever the necessary to, to move forward. I think we also see in our own experience some of the generational issues. You do have physicians that are within the, were in, within the last five to 10 years of their plan to retire who were somewhat reticent to be making the necessary investments to move forward. But I think on the flip side, you are seeing the younger physicians, both specialists and primary care physicians, who one are much more comfortable with technological platforms and how to leverage data through those platforms to improve care and how those platforms and technological advances can support their move to value-based care. And so on some level, I believe this is part of a generational switch. And to a certain degree, it's probably um, advanced the priority for many uh, in the healthcare system. And I remain optimistic that this actually will be a silver lining of the pandemic, uh, especially if we, if we accept the notion that whether it's this extensive or not, these type of viruses will continue to uh, be on the scene. We will need to deal with them as a delivery system. And so why not learn the lesson now so that we can mitigate the challenges in the future? Well, Jeff, it's great to end our conversation today on a note of optimism. And I've really enjoyed our time together today. I mean, you're truly a leader in the race to value, and we couldn't be more supportive of the, the great work that the Healthcare Transformation Task Force is doing to catalyze value-based payment adoption in our country. You know, thanks so much for joining us this week on the podcast. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, Jeff.